Hey, everybody. I'm really excited about this episode that I have to share with you today. David Richmond is an author and an athlete, and he wrote a gorgeous book called Cycle of Lives. It's 15 vignettes about people's lives who were impacted by cancer. The book is largely written in honor of his sister. And David shares with us how his own experience, getting on his bike, riding across the country, helped him grieve his sister's death. He just has a lot of insights for us. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for being here. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast. I am really excited today to be sitting here with David Richmond. David's people reached out to me to let me know that he has written an extraordinary book, partly honoring his sister's death from cancer. So the book is called Cycle of Lives, and it came out in October of 2020, and it's getting rave reviews and winning awards. I want to just give you a quick description In Cycle of Lives, David Richmond takes the reader on an unexplored journey uncovering the emotions behind cancer, exploring issues far exceeding everyday survival. He does this by presenting 15 remarkable stories from people whose encounters with cancer come from varying perspectives and whose journeys span the full range of human emotions. The stories are engaging, evocative, and provide insight into the human experience in dealing with trauma. In addition to the 15 stories, he presents the narrative of biking across the country 5,000 miles in six weeks to meet the book participants while sorting out his own emotions over having lost his sister to cancer years before. David, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. I'm really excited to hear more about the process. Part of what I didn't read in the bio is that you're an author of other books. Mm-hmm. A minute ago, I called you an elite athlete and you said that's not quite right. But folks, believe me when I say he is up there in the elite athlete categories because you have run many, 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 many miles longer than most mm-hmm. humans will ever do in their whole lives and, and biking and mm-hmm. all of that. So thank you so much for being here to talk to us today. Absolutely. I'm very excited, Megan. And yeah, let's take off the gloves and go at it. Yeah, let's go at it. So tell us about this book. I am really interested in is you made this promise to your sister to do this biking event. Where did all that come from? Were you already a big athlete? Was that something that you and your sister did together? How did that become part of your mourning the loss to your sister right. cancer? Well, it's a little bit of a sad story, but it did provide an inflection point for this transformation. So about the time that I got the call making from my sister that she had uh, been diagnosed with very uh, serious brain cancer, brain cancer. Uh, she had, you know, husband, young kids, good career, great friends, you know, very vital woman. Um, about that time, I was going through personal changes of my own. I had uh, young twins, four-year-old twins, and I was in a really bad a personal situation I needed to get out of and get my kids out of. So we kind of broke away, them and I, and then I went through this kind of transformation where I said I wanted to become healthy. And I, I was an overweight. I, I hadn't done anything. I was not wow. an athlete at all. I kind of lived in a world where I did stuff because I thought I should, or because I thought other people wanted me to do a certain things, you know, trying to please everybody else. And I just said, why don't you look in the mirror and just take care of the 
the person that's in the mirror first and then, and then everything else will get better. So I started to do that. I get this call from my sister. I started to become athletic and a couple of years into her battle when it was nearing the end is the answer to your question is she said to me, Hey, listen, I know I'm getting close, but there's a 24 hour American cancer society relay for life going on. And there's a team that's going to be there for 24 hours uh, walking the track and supporting me. I want to be in a camper, you know, in, in, in a tent. I'm laying on my chair. I'm watching them for the whole 24 hours. I really want to do that. And I said, oh my gosh, well, if you can do that, then I'll run the whole 24 hours. So I'll be out there the whole 24 hours with you. And the sad part is, unfortunately, she died a couple of days before the event. So she didn't get to see that happen. But I did go and do the 24 hours. Obviously very tough, but I kind of noticed and the seeds were planted for this project at that event when I noticed that people were really good, Megan, about talking about like, how do I navigate work? How do I help get extra meals to my kids while I'm going through treatment? How do I reduce stress? They were kind of good about like these tasks around dealing with their cancer. But when it came to the grief and the emotion and the remembrance and the you know, just the whole emotional side of it, everybody went into their own heads. Yes. People don't talk about those kind of things and neither did I. Right. I mean, I I did with my sister, but really the, the, the grief, the emotion, the, the pain, the trauma of it on the emotional side of it, that's, that's kept inside. And I thought, you know, gosh, that's a really unfortunate side effect of trauma, especially the trauma of cancer, because it's, it's a whole different kind of trauma that it wouldn't be interesting if we could explore that. So then over the next few years, Megan, I was doing these events to raise money for the cancer center that took care of her and and remember her and all this stuff. And that theme kept coming up. Mm. Just weren't able to talk about the emotional side of it. And then I said to myself, what if I found a bunch of really amazing people wrote their stories with the hopes of empowering people, equipping them, to better understand what people might have gone through or are going through so that we could start these hard conversations rather than just kind of keep them all bottled up and hidden inside. Oh, wow. Well, first of all, I want to say, I mean, I'm really sorry about the mm-hmm. loss of your sister. I'm really sorry about her death and, and this very specific trauma of losing someone to cancer, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I lost my dad to cancer in 2017 and not every cancer is the same. Not every loss is the same, but I think those of us who love those folks and have loved them through their death, understand that it's a particularly devastating, ravaging way where we don't get to say they didn't suffer. We don't get to say that they weren't in pain because that's, you know, that's the nature of the illness. It is. Um, Yeah. But, but I'm curious, where did the 15 people that you interviewed come from? How was, were that, was that a network of people you already had? Did you, you know, mm-hmm. send out a call through cancer networks and on boards? How did you select yeah. um, those powerful stories? Yeah. Thank you for that. That's a great question. When I got this idea and what I originally said was, oh, well, I'm going to go do like 50 Relay for Lives and meet people there and talk about it. And that was my original thing. Like go do 50 of these things or 25 of these things. And, but that just didn't, that didn't make sense. So I said, Oh, let me see if I can find people. And here, here's what my thought was, is that I wanted to not talk about one person's perspective 
or one type of cancer or one age. I didn't want to talk about survivorship or um, wellness. What I wanted to do was I wanted to cover a wide range of ages. Somebody that had the fear of cancer to somebody that, that had cancer 10 times. I wanted to talk about people that had, you know, stage zero all the way through stage four, mm. encountered it when they were young, old, survivor, loved one, doctor, professional, caregiver. I wanted all these other perspectives. And then what my goal was, was to say, what if I um, do it this way? We all have traumas, right? And I, I look, I, I feel like humans, Megan, are connected by two things, right? We're connected by stories. We love stories, Right. Who is not going to lean in when, when you ask a question and the person answers goes, well, let me tell you a story. You're always going to lean in. Yeah. And we're also connected by our emotions. And I said, well, if we're connected by our emotions, what affects our ability to deal and process with and talk about those emotions? It's the traumas and the fears and the being unsafe and the not knowing wh where you can go and who you can talk to and the fear of looking stupid or saying something stupid that people are going to ban you. There's all these things. Yeah. And I think they're caused by the traumas that happened in our life. So I said, let me find people who had these rem remarkable traumatic pasts like we all do. And then starting at point A is when they encounter cancer, either as a young kid, you're watching a parent die or yeah. whatever. A is when they encounter cancer. B is today the journey from A to B in relation to all the traumas that happened in their life. I felt like that would equip people. So a, a really silly example may, may would be if you asked a friend how they're doing when they're going through chemo and they go, oh, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. Right. And, then, and then they walk away and you go, oh my gosh, you know what? I, are they totally fine? Should I ask them more? They seem like they didn't really care to hear my concern for them. Meanwhile, maybe what's happening is that person that you asked reached out for help for somebody else and got denied. And so they don't want, they don't want you to care about them because they're afraid you're not going to really follow through and you're going to abandon them. Yeah. Right. There could be a million things that are going on. Yeah. And if we can better understand what people are going through or what they have gone through, then I think it will allow us to have more meaningful conversations with them and, and also with ourselves. Part of what I love about what you're saying is the twofold piece around trauma, right? Which mm -hmm. is the idea that all of us are looking for a sort of me too element when we're listening, reading, or hearing a story, right? We are sort of in a healthy way, narcissistic in that way. Yeah. We want to feel a connection. And Sometimes our defenses mean we push those things away, but in our healthiest version of ourselves, humanity is sort of connected. And part of what we want to be able to do when there is a trauma that we're adjacent to something that we are, it's not ours specifically, it's my sister who's dying of cancer is to be able to show up for that process, as well as be in my own grief. So if I'm going to show up for my sister, then I probably need someone behind me who's showing up for me. And each one of us kind of has to hone that skill set of being able to listen well and show up well. And one of the things I talk about as a trauma therapist is, you know, we're not going to get that right all of the time. 
it's awkward and uncomfortable, but we still, there are a lot of things in our lives, like first day of work, first date, first kiss that are awkward and uncomfortable, but we don't say like, oh, well then don't do it. Just right. you know, wait <laughs> right. for them to call you. Right. We right. still, we push through it because we think there's some sort of reward around yep. it. And the concept of hearing people's stories, understanding the experience. Mm-hmm. And I love what you're describing in terms of it's not, it, this, these aren't all the guys you went to college with and you're asking them, how has cancer affected your life? You're, you have deliberately spanned across a wide variety of stories so that there's a, you know, your reader is going to have multiple entry points. If this story is not relatable, wait till page 47. Absolutely. Story there. That's just yeah. such a beautiful effort. Yeah. So I really wanted different stories. So I went to friends. I went to coworkers. My wife, oddly enough, she had, she went to high school with only a hundred students in her senior class and like five of them had died of cancer. Wow. And so there was one that was, that had stage four cancer twice. And she agreed to talk to me. I call, I cold called hospitals, cold called cancer centers saying, Hey, here's what I'm, I'm doing. Do you know anybody that's got a spectacular story? inspiring story. I just did everything that I could. And what I had to do is I had to find a wide range of people so that I didn't get pigeonholed into a constant theme. I wanted it to be very, every story to be very different. Yeah. And the other thing is that I needed to find people that were willing to talk. Yeah. And I don't mean just talk. I mean, go deep, 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 deep. Yeah. Um, and, and get less of you into the most personal things so that we could answer really big questions, you know, like Bobby's story. How do you live your life being a sabotager, saboteur of all of your relationships? Mm-hmm. You finally find somebody, a little angel who turns you into the best you, and two years later, she dies of cancer. How do you then allow yourself to be loved and to love again, yeah. right? That is a story like I'd like to know how do you do that? Like yeah. Terry's story, being literally driving herself to the hospital to have her surgery for her cancer. And her fiance calls her up and says, on the way to the hospital, hey, I'm sorry, I can't be there for you. I, I got somebody else pregnant and I'm going to be staying up here with them. You're on your own, babe. Woo. Like, How do you recover from that? How do you not feel abandoned later in life, right? How, so I wanted to answer all of these stories. Here's, here's another one. The first time that you find out that you have cancer is that you're going to be willed into surgery and your response is to smile and say, thank goodness. Could wow. you imagine that? No. Wow. no. So what I wanted to do was to, to give these kind of wild, crazy range of stories where people were willing to go super, super deep into their experience on the emotional side. Part of my podcasting and writing and clinical work is exactly what you just described, which is most people will hear those stories that you just described and say, oh my God, I couldn't ever, right? That's the phrase. Oh my God, I die. Yep. And yet what we know is people live through untenable loss all the time and they don't die. I'm not trying to pretend there isn't a percentage of people who, whose lives are broken and we lose them to addiction and we lose Absolutely. them to mental illness and we lose them to despair. There is a percentage, mm-hmm. but I think most of us actually, whether we do it in a healthy way or not, we have to figure out how to navigate it moving forward. Traumatic growth kind of means that there's 
the trauma happens and you continue to grow. Mm -hmm. And many of us end up, you know, with scars and shrapnel and all of that stuff. But part of what your book is offering is no, no, here's how these people did it. Right. I have a guy that's going to be on my podcast in a while and he lost a child. And then 10 years later, he woke up in profound alcoholism and said, I need to get better, but he doesn't remember those 10 years, because in those 10 years he was navigating by using alcohol. We can have opinions and feelings about that, but that's one way to survive. You know, there's, there's a multiplicity of ways. And I think most of us, because we don't talk about it, just what you're just describing. We talk about the practicalities of talk to this doctor, see if you can get this service paid for by Medicare, Mm -hmm. but we don't say emotionally, these are the resources that I had to garner for myself. These are the parts of myself that I had to grow in order to navigate this thing that was not in my life before, whether it's loss or cancer or illness or supporting someone else who is going through it. We just don't hear those stories. I think I'm thinking in the back of my mind about a, a woman who talked about pregnancy loss. And what she said was, when I had pregnancy loss, when I miscarried, I didn't know anyone who had miscarried. But of course, then when I started talking about it, it turns out I knew lots of people who miscarried. Tons of people. Right? Yeah, right. absolutely. Right. And so it's that thing where yeah. for whatever reason, we need an invitation to talk about the hardest things. If someone doesn't give us the invitation, then we're having this like in a developmental psychology way, like parallel play. Everybody's kind of doing the same thing, but nobody's right. nobody oh, totally. on it. Yeah. yeah, totally. I tell this story of, of this family. So I'm in New Mexico, I'm on the bike ride, right? And we'll talk about the bike ride in a minute, but yeah. I'm on the bike ride and I'm in New Mexico and I have a friend there and his dad had gone through cancer. He was in his you know eighties or something, but he'd gone through cancer in his, in his uh, late sixties, early seventies. And he had a sister who was about 50 or so and had gone through uh, stage three breast cancer, double mastectomy, was a RN and then went to become a lobbyist for patient okay. rights. He invites me to a brunch, big, big, big Mexican family. They all like, oh, they're all hugging, loving each other. And it's like, yeah. oh man, I'm so jealous. These people are so close. And the dad pulls me aside and he goes, hey, my boy, I'm really glad what you're doing here. This is good stuff. People need to talk about their emotions. And with cancer and the, the trauma and it's so difficult and you have to talk about it. I'm so glad you're writing this book. And then the daughter pulls me aside and says, hey, you know what? This is really important stuff because the emotional side of this whole disease and the, the trauma and, and the nonsense of it, um, we don't talk about. So I'm really glad you're doing this book. It's really going to help people. So as I'm getting ready to leave, I stand up and I say, thank you. And I go, look, by the way, most people are not like your family. They don't talk about their cancer and the, what the emotions that they went through. And I look over at the dad and the sister and they're both heads down with hands in their laps. I go, what? You guys haven't talked about it? And and you just got done telling me how great it is and how important it is. And they both said, yeah, it is important. But the dad didn't talk to his daughter because He's old school Mexican. I don't want to burden my family. The daughter didn't talk to the dad because I didn't want to bring up bad feelings about what he might've gone through. I didn't want to make him feel guilty. He might lose a daughter. So we just kind of don't talk about it. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. but you're so close. And they go, we are, but you know, we don't really, but they both wanted to know, like, do we have the okay to talk about it? I think sometimes you discover that you're in a family system or a culture that doesn't do something the way that you need it done right now in this moment. So it's like, I need to be in a family that can talk more openly about cancer 
right now because cancer's here. As opposed to since the beginning of time, we've been having open discussions about hard things. And therefore, when cancer shows up, we can have a conversation about hard things. What I've noticed is that people are often able to talk about the need for something without understanding that really what they're talking about is the need for it in this moment. And it's kind of like the difference between the theory and the knowing, right? I've been a grief and loss specialist for a long time. I don't know that I knew what I know now until I experienced my own knowing of loss, right? You, you can talk about visiting France, but it's different than being in France and living in France and hearing the sure. spoken. So, so again, I feel like it's like the macro element of your book and your effort is there for all of the, all of the people who can come in contact with it and say, gosh, we really would be better off, all of us, people dying of cancer, people who need support around cancer, people who have friends that are needing support around, all of us would do better on that sort of macro umbrella of let's up our game in terms of saying, talking about this is Mm -hmm. awkward and uncomfortable and difficult and necessary. Mm-hmm. Right. And then there's the micro level of, oh man, that really meant a lot to me to sit and have that conversation with that person who could tolerate me saying, I'm afraid and relieved, or right. I'm scared and hopeful. Right. right. And that's, I think when, when you're with people who have been with complicated emotions, it's like speaking the same native language where you don't really have to explain those feelings that some people have of guilt after someone who has been ravaged by cancer dies, they say, actually, I hate to say this, but I'm relieved, right? Like anybody right. who's lost someone to cancer is we're, you know, I get it. You don't have to explain that. No shame right. in that. Right. Not the same as saying you wish them dead. It's, it's that it's really hard. It has its own right. specifics. Oh, totally. And look, it's like, we're waiting for an invitation to talk about it. Who can't identify with this, with this scenario? Yeah. So the scenario is you, you're walking through the hallway at work and one of your friends that you are kind of close to, but not super close to is looking a little bummed out and you go, oh my gosh, how are you doing today? And they, they look up and they go, oh, I'm okay. And you go, no, you're not. What's going on? Well, I just got off the phone with my, my brother over the weekend and his daughter is his teenage daughter is cancer. Who can't identify with, ah, shit, what the hell do I say? I don't know what to say. And so you go, oh, I'm really sorry. And you walk away because you don't know what to say. You don't want to embarrass yourself. You don't want to make them feel guilty. You're just, you just clam up. And that person might be thinking, thank God they left me alone and didn't ask me more. Or, oh my God, I opened up and I said something and all they did was walk away. Yeah. And it's like, I, I can see all sides of that equation. Absolutely. But I think to the core of us, the person that was telling you what was going on wants a safe place to talk to somebody that cares. And you, the person that's walking down the hallway, if somebody is relying on you to give them a safe space and wants you to care, if even for a moment, you want to, you want to show them that you do, but we just don't want to do the wrong thing. We don't want to say the wrong thing. We don't, we don't know how to act. And it's like you said, if we could just sit down, have that invitation to deal with it now, like maybe a, re- maybe a response could be, God, I don't want to sound like an idiot, but 
that just sounds like the most horrible thing I've ever heard. And I'm sorry to, if that makes you feel bad, but I got to tell you, man, that's just horrible. And maybe that person is going, I know, right? Just, just give yourself an opportunity to talk to them. And I'm hope what I'm hoping the book will do. And again, I'm not, I'm not preaching. I'm not trying to be prescriptive or anything, but I'm, what I'm hoping the book will do is shed some light on people's vast array of different traumas and different experiences so that maybe something clicks in us that yeah. we go, oh, here's how I could better deal with it. Or here's how I can deal with it when I talk to people a little bit better. You know, as a, as a trauma therapist, one of the things that people want me to do a lot is tell them what to do so -hmm. that they can do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Because when you're in that work scenario, you don't want to be the jackass who says the bad thing to the, you know, to this friend of yours who you care about. And yet, you know, in that moment that you're not sure that you're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. First of all, there are lots of books out there that will say, do this, don't do that. And what I would say is each one of those lists is imperfect. Because there are, there's too, there's too wide a breadth of experiences. You know, I really didn't love it after my mom died suddenly when people would say, oh, she's an angel in heaven looking down on you. And I understood why people said that my mom was deeply religious, but I'm not. And so that hurt. Mm -hmm. And other people to say your mother's looking down on you from heaven is the most lovely you know, healing, you know, you'll have someone say that was the worst thing someone could say to me and the best thing someone could say to me in the same, you know, sample group. And so part of what, part of what I love about your book and the books that I put on my website are the intention is to increase people's belief that we can do this, that we can show up for the conversations. And it's not because you're following someone else's prescriptive menu or dance steps. It's because you've sat and thought it out before you have that awkward moment in the hallway with your colleague and you've decided or given some consideration to how you want to show up. I give this example a lot, but I had a friend who, you know, someone had, someone lost, someone died in our neighborhood and I was talking to her and she said, oh, I'm, I have to go make a lasagna you know, for this food train. And I was like, look, you're a terrible cook. What do you mean you're making a lasagna? And she said, oh, well, you know, that's what everyone does. And I said, says who? I mean, there's multiple ways to show up. Why in the world would you agree to show up in a way that you already know isn't going to be good for you? You know, it's not going to land the way you want it to land. And what you want is to be loving and have that love received. And so if I were teaching a class, what I would say is it's all going to be imperfect There's going to be knees and elbows. Probably the person who is on the receiving end might have to say that sucks for me. I mean, I certainly have said that to people. Like, I know you're trying to show up with love. It's not landing right. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, rather than pull away and isolate and which is Mm -hmm. what we can do. But I think the more possible, the more stories you take in of how did someone navigate loss and how did people show up for them? increases our education of what is possible. And I'm not sure this is the best scenario, but I, uh, metaphor, but I grew up in churches and for a period of time, I went to a, to a really tiny church and the priest that was at that church could manage the entire celebration by himself. He would bring everything up to the altar and celebrate the last supper all by himself. 
Nice. Because of some things that shifted and changed, the, the congregation became larger and he needed, he wasn't sent an extra person to help. Mm-hmm. The people in the community had to become what they call lay servers, right? Which is like, I am familiar with this ritual and I know I can come over and hold that cup of wine or I can come over and right. that when I think about where we are in COVID, I think many of us should be picking up books and be ready to be lay servers mm. to the community because as a mental health practitioner right now, I have a like two to three month waiting list. I turn people away all the time because the need is so great. That is actually relatively new for me to have that long a waiting list. Thank and you. your book provides people some concept of what the ritual, it's not all going to be the same. There are multiple ways to enter in, but if you're not going to sit down and get a master's degree in grief and loss, or you're not going to become a palliative care practitioner, Mm -hmm. then pick up one of the dozens of books that are on my website that I just happen to think are good Mm -hmm. and educate yourself in a way that feels like I know 3% more than I did before I picked up this book. That's the gift of that, of that work and effort that you have done for us. Absolutely. And if it just, if just learning how to affect one encounter in a positive way, that will have such a lasting and rewarding effect. It's great. Sometimes I get bummed out because, you know, you got writing a book is part writing the book. It's part writing a good book. Yeah. It's part writing a good book that people want to read. And it's part getting people to read the book so that they're happy that they read it because it's a good book, right? There's all different parts of it. Yeah. Every once in a while. So sometimes, you know, I'm bummed out that I'm not Barack Obama and I've pre-sold 5 million copies. (laughs) Right, right, right. But every once in a while, I'll get a note, you know, hey, I've been a critical care nurse for 15 years. Your book's going to make me a better caregiver. And I'm like, holy crap. Right. If if, If everything I've done is just so that she can be a better caregiver, I was uh, interviewed by a, a wonderful gentleman who went from being an oncologist to running a nonprofit. And he said, I read your book twice. And I went, oh man, that's really nice. He goes, yeah, the first time I read it, I was horrified. He goes, every story I read, I related to one of my past experiences with a patient. And I wondered if I was um, a caring enough doctor. He goes, oh my God, I don't know if I was. He said, the second time I read it, I kind of read it to, to enjoy the stories and let them sink in a little bit. And I said, well, I'm sure if you're caring about whether or not you're a great doctor, I'm sure right. you were a good doctor. But I, I think you're right. If we can just learn just a little bit, just a little bit more and be better equipped to handle a tougher situation, a tough conversation, or better equipped to keep the conversation in our head in a more positive way, or just, you know just grab these little tidbits along the way. I'm with you. It's just unbelievably helpful. And you brought up COVID. I think what trauma, especially extreme trauma can offer us. Sometimes it takes 10 years of being an alcoholic. Sometimes it takes 16 months of being locked in your house, but what it can cause us is a way to transform. Yeah. And I'm an optimist at heart. My wife will tell you, oh my God, why are you so optimistic? Even when I'm late, 
I go, ah, I'm optimistic. I thought I was going to make every light. You know? <laughs> I thought there wasn't going to be a line at the post office. What do you want from me? I think that by taking a deep breath, by allowing yourself to take a deep breath and forcing yourself to go through whatever process you need to go through to pay attention to what's going on, you can and will come out stronger on the other side. Oh, I love that. I think that's gorgeous. And I think the concept of traumatic growth, I have like a love-hate relationship with it. One is that I don't want to minimize people's experiences by saying like, oh, you're going to be the better for it on the other side. And yet I have met so many people and in my own experience that would say to you, there are things that are different on account of this terrible thing. I would never have wished this terrible thing, but not everything that's come out of it is terrible. And I think that that's a, maybe a more gentler way of describing traumatic growth and saying, you know, you had to start a cancer foundation. I do want to hear about, you know, what was the process for you in riding your bike across the country? Because one question that I have and this really does come sort of from my heart as a clinician, there's a grief and loss model, a modern model. So not the stages of grief, which we all know is garbage, but the, there's a grief and loss model, which is called dual processing, which basically means that you're loss oriented for some of the time. And in the early stages, fresh grief, that's going to be, you know, 80, 90% of the day, but eventually you're, you sort of oscillate between feeling loss oriented. And then there's other periods of the day where you're just, I don't know, filing your taxes. And when I'm talking to people and they're sort of trying to learn how to carry grief, learn how to be a griever, I, I describe that like, listen, we, nobody can be overwhelmed and in grief all day. You should definitely have some dissociative tools. If grief isn't letting you go watch some TV, find some ways of sort of moving the energy through so that you don't have to be present and in it, in your five senses all the time. And so athletics is one of those. We would, you know, I generally start with people like, what does it occur to you when I say, hey, listen, I don't want you to be in the depth of your feeling all the time. Let's pick something that you can do that would literally just be to kind of do something other than grieving. And it's such an interesting conversation because people will say, you know, it's, I have a violin from high school under my bed. And I was thinking maybe I should pick up the violin. And I don't in that moment say to them, let me tell you about the neurology behind why you're being attracted to that. I say, pick it up, go play. We are instinctively always, I think, trying to heal. And so people will tell me that they woke up in the middle of the night and wanted to write. So they started writing. Mm -hmm. They, Mm -hmm. it occurred to them to put their running shoes on. I, I, there's a woman named Liz Tickner who wrote a beautiful book and It's about losing a child and she became a runner, you know, two days after she lost this baby, she started running and now she's still a runner. I think people, their systems start to invite them to do things that are about taking the energy where it is and moving it through the body so that you maybe don't have to carry all of it as intensely. Mm -hmm. But there is this other part of me as a trauma therapist, which says, listen, we don't want to do like 10 hours in a row of dissociative. If you're in your 50th hour on Netflix of television, we may, that may be actually not helping the process of grieving. So I am really fascinated. And I want you to talk to me about what was it like for you to be in grief, to have grief forefront of mind Mm -hmm. and be doing this epic ride across the country. Like, who was supporting you? What was your right, mental right. state like? Go ahead. It's probably one of those long answers coming up, but I'll try to keep it not too long. Uh, earlier, we talked about what connects humans, right? Storytelling and, and emotion. 
And I thought, well, what better way to connect the people who had given me a couple of years of their time, allowing me super deep into their experiences, what better way to connect them to get on my bike and connect them? So I had this idea like, okay, well, I'll, I'll get on my bike and I put together this crazy schedule, you know, of doing 100 to 125 miles a day wow. on a bike. I had my, my wife, she was my fiance at the time. She was with me for the majority of those days, you know, running point, you know, going yeah. back and forth between the hotel or bringing me lunch or bringing me more water, or telling me where there was. She was your crew. Change. She was my crew. But I was, you know, paddling by myself and I had to get from point A to point B every day because of, you know, things like the hotels were given to me and I had media and I had to visit people and I had to stay on, I had to stay on track. So I had to do the miles every single day. There wasn't an option to not do them, which was really, really difficult. Yeah. So I'd set this monumental task, probably because I wanted to do something special. I wanted to prove to myself that I could do something that's totally ridiculous. How many people are going to ride their bike cross country the long way, right? Because yeah. it's only 3,000 miles. I put in nearly 5,000 miles because I zigzagged around and do it in a short period of time, do it against cr crazy temperatures and wind and all this nonsense. So I wanted to be able to do that. And I wanted to connect the stories. And I also wanted to meet people along the way or hope that I would meet people along the way that would either add to those stories or would reinforce the thought that my purpose in writing this book was justified, that people were looking for this type of, of a tool. And fortunately, all of those things happened. The one thing that was a surprise to me was it's just like some light switch clicked on the first day where I started to contemplate the loss of my sister. Now it had been about 10 years since, yeah. since she had died. And yeah, I processed it, but I really hadn't put it under a microscope, put a bright light on it, put it into perspective of all the other traumas that I had in my life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't fully, I, cause I never had anybody that talked to me about the emotional side of losing my sister. So I'd never had, I don't think one serious conversation about it my whole life, you know, in that whole 10 years. So I was able to, to, to go there and to think about things and to process the emotions and to figure out, you know, how can I deal with this? How can I put it in the right place? How can I not avoid it? You know, I didn't want to, you know, like how some, some people, they break a finger and it's like the worst thing that happened to them or they they get their leg cut off and it was nothing. I mean, like everybody's different. What I didn't want to do is just leave it in the corner, dusty parts of my head yeah. and not give it time and attention. And so the bike ride gave me that added benefit of even though I went on to contemplate the 15 stories or what would eventually be the 15 stories because I hadn't written them yet. I just yeah. prepared to write them. I wanted to contemplate them on the, on the ride because let me tell you something, Megan, when you're biking 12 hours in a, on a quiet highway in Texas, you think a lot, you know, but I got to think about my own, you know, my own situation as well. And that was a surprise because I had expected to write 15 stories. I didn't expect to write the 16th story, which was my narrative yeah. in between each one of those stories that helps kind of tie them all together. 
I love that answer. And, and part of what I'm thinking when you're talking is thank goodness you didn't come to me and say, Megan, what do you think about this? I'm going to ride and make it really, really hard. And honestly, it's why I don't give advice, right? Like I would never know to say to somebody, I think your grief story is going to show up like this. I think you should get on a bike, you and your fiance, Mm -hmm. you know, and you should be in your head about these stories. Those are the kinds of things that we have to invent for ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, all the, all the different neurotransmitters in our brain, right. And that some people are low in some, and some people have more of others that, mm-hmm. that there are periods of time in grief where what we really need is like the dopamine, the reward chemical, the sense of feeling like I did something really hard and I yeah. achieved it. And there are, there are other periods of time in grief where I need more of the endorphin and the painkiller and the sense of like, I, you know. I've dissociated from this or the oxytocin of being connected. I mean, your story has all of that sort of like Mm -hmm. all the neuro pathways of healing inside it. It's connection, it's stabilization, it's Mm -hmm. writing. And so when I talk to folks about like, what are the actions that we do to grieve? You know, it's also, when do we do them? It's also, you know, when do they show themselves? Because I know you know this. Those of us who have grieved understand that it's something that we will do in different ways for the rest of our lives. People who are on the outside sort of think like, oh, it's been six months. Are you better? And what we know is, well, today may not be a very active grief day, but tomorrow might be. Right. It's having the tools inside that, right? Like I know sometimes when there's enough agitation inside my system that I need to sit down with my journal and sort of like ask myself about it. There mm-hmm. are some days where there's enough agitation in my system. I need to throw my sneakers on and go for a pretty aggressive walk. Right. And it's, it's kind of knowing those two things together. What I will tell you, my system would never say is get on a bike ah. and ride for 5,000 miles. I don't think I have that inside my system. So again, it's the reason why we don't advise people on these things. What we say is I'm here to sort of coach and cultivate. Let me tell you what other people have done. Let me show you some of the menus, Mm -hmm. particularly for men. I have some men who have come and said, listen, I didn't cry after my mom died. I'm really afraid I didn't grieve. And I say, well, tell me the story of your mother's death. And they will tell Mm -hmm. me that they sat vigil with her that they took her to every doctor's appointment, that they cleaned out her home afterwards, that they made a big donation to her, you know, charity of choice. And I say, well, every one of those things is a grief activity. You would not have done any of those if you weren't Mm -hmm. grieving the loss Mm -hmm. of your mother. And sometimes that just makes people cry out of relief to know that they're a human who was grieving. They just maybe didn't sob about it. That's one format. For tears, right? But it's not the it's not the only one. Yeah, and look, most people think. Well, I don't know what most people think, but I think that most people think, you know, that that by paying attention to those negative things, you're doing something wrong. And I think that we avoid we avoid those hardcore exercises, right? You see it a million times in movies and TV shows and with friends, something really bad happens and the person doesn't want to talk about it. I'm going to move on. I'm going to be fine. And you're just sitting there going, no, you're not. You've got to deal with this thing. But people deal with things when they deal with them. And I believe that grief 
is a number of things, right? You could grieve over the fact that you are done with college and that was the only time in your life absolutely safe, right? You could grieve that a friend abandoned you and you're you're now never going to talk to that friend again. You absolutely right over a number you could grieve over losing a job or what whatever, right? But what we do, we oftentimes don't know, you know, pay attention to it, talk about it, deal with it, process it, imagine it in ways that can help us. And we just take that, oh, oh, it'll make you stronger crap. Well, I don't agree with that either. Oh, right? Because it's not true. No, <laughs> it's just not make true. You weaker, but who cares? Deal with it. Right. I just, I feel like, like if you don't process the issues that are inside, whether it leads you to just shug your arms up and go, I'm never going to solve this problem, but at least you tried to, but then you just got to go, okay, it's never going to be solvable. So I got to just accept the fact that it's not solvable rather than just going, I'm not going to look at that problem. So I learned that actually Megan on a 50 mile run. Yes. So let me tell you a quick story. So I I started to do longer and longer runs and I was doing this. I was getting ready to do a run on the last Saturday in June outside of Las Vegas. So imagine the temperature. It got to like 118 that day. And I had had some stressful issues leading up to it a couple of days before I slept in. I was like a half hour late getting moving. I parked my car, raced up to the start line. They had taken off like two minutes before. So I had to, I had to like, I was all frantic. I didn't, you know, get to relax. And, and it, the race started at 6 a.m. And by like the first turn, which was maybe a quarter of a mile from the start line, it was already like in the 90s. Oh, and I'm just, and I'm, I'm bitching and moaning and I go well I mean really what the hell are you doing this for and and then I went dude get some freaking perspective you signed up for this you're the one that wants to do it why are you complaining you got to change your perspective and then I said huh that's an interesting word perspective Mm -hmm. I go I wonder what perspective means And then I said, well, I guess in movies, it's kind of like the director's perspective on how they use the camera and how, then I thought how different directors open up movies. And I thought, well, that's different perspective. Let's see, what what else perspective? And I went through like a hundred different ways that I could tear apart the word perspective. And the reason I wanted to do that was so that I could probably tell myself like, dude, figure out a way to always change your perspective and be, you know, like, like put things in the proper place. Don't make something tiny. You elected to do a problem. Just don't do it next time. Right. By the time I finished contemplating <laughs> the word perspective, it was the 25 mile turnaround. I had gone nearly five hours without another thought. All I was doing was forcing myself to think of the word perspective. And for me, it became a little bit easier for me to self-talk my way in and out of situations after that, because when do you have five hours to contemplate something like that? Yeah. But I I could tell myself more easily and it wasn't trite and it wasn't on on the bottom of a cereal box. When I said, change your mind, change your perspective. You don't have to do this. You get to do this. These weren't trite things that- No, I get it. Right? Right. It's an invitation. I mean, we have a model in trauma work that comes to us from- a man named Dick Schwartz and it's internal family systems that I really love. And essentially it's sort of like, listen, you have a typical bus driver who drives you where you want to go. 
Mm-hmm. But when you're going somewhere that you don't really know where it is, you might need to call on different bus drivers. So you might normally be a pretty type A person who makes a plan and uses a lot of your frontal lobe to think something through logically. But, you know, we all also have parts that are more impulsive or parts that are more instinctive or parts that are more fearful. And so when people get stuck in a certain perspective, often I use this sort of metaphor of like, who's driving the bus Mm -hmm. and say, what would it take to ask that part to relinquish driving for now? And who else would your team like to elect to try to get you from here to there? Mm -hmm. Because generally when we're in pain and when we are suffering, Again, there's there's neurology behind this, but we're in a state that that it's it's going to it's going to give us the information that we already believe is true. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if you can relax that, ask that sense of fear to step back a little bit, there's often possibilities, which sounds like on your run, this is where you came to of sort of more curiosity and creativity around how do I want to be in this space? What do I want this to feel like? What would be useful for me? And I think that's a really nuanced concept when it comes to grief. I've talked about this before, but I had this really transformative experience in a trauma training once where two master therapists were were doing an example for us. And it got, as you described, really deep, really fast, right? Like these are two people that know how to get vulnerable. And one of them, to me, really looked like she was in distress. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of new to the work. And the other one said, she said, well, I'm okay. I'm okay. And the other one said, oh, I know you're okay. With this genuine, and I didn't know she was okay until it was stated, right? Mm -hmm. Like this woman said, no, no, I know you're okay. I just want you to know I'm here with you and you don't have to do it like you're alone. Like I'm here with you. We can do this together. I know you're okay. I'm not here to rescue you or save you. I think what happens with grief is people are like, oh my God, nobody knows how to do this. It's so hard. It's so hard. Mm -hmm. And that is the truth. It is completely hard. We are all on our 5,000, you know, mile bike ride all by ourselves, really that we can pick excellent pit crew, but they cannot pedal for us. Mm -hmm. We need them to believe that we can do it so that we can do the hard thing. Mm -hmm. And when we come out the other side, we will always know that about ourselves. Yeah, totally. You will always know that you can ride your bike for across the country in a zigzag, that you have the mind space and the physical capacity. You will, that is the gift of having survived this thing that your bus driver decided this is going to be how we're going to do grief work 10 years after your sister's loss. This is what we're doing. Absolutely. And and just to that point, one of the lessons that I learned, and I talk about this very briefly in the book is that when I needed to rely on myself, I was able to deal with whatever it, I had to rely on myself. I was able to deal with whatever was thrown at me. Other times when I had somebody there to help me, yeah. I really needed their help. Like I wouldn't have gotten through the issue without their help. Yeah. And it was like this, oh, I learned when to rely on people and I learned that I didn't have to rely on people. Those are two opposite sides of a coin that can come in handy at different times in your life because you can't always yeah. go it alone and you can't always have somebody there watching you and and covering for you. And so I, I thought that was a real gift to learn and to be conscious of that thought 
of, because yeah. uh, I'm really, really not good at asking for help. I'm really good at handling things on my own. Yeah. But to know that I could rely on people was a very big lesson to learn, but also what you just said to reinforce the fact that I didn't need to rely on anybody yeah. was an important thing to learn as well. Yeah. And in my experience is there's the little bit of like elbows and knees that happen with that. When you are someone who has typically relied on yourself and you understand that there's a deficit to that. So you're going to practice or intentionally reach out to other people. Often what happens is the people are not used to you asking and they miss it. You got to ask five or six times. And so when I'm coaching people through that, I'm like, listen, I know it feels like you took a really big risk and asked for help and no one helped you. But I think there's a possibility that people didn't take you seriously, didn't really hear what you were asking for. And before you decide to double down on, oh, you have to do everything yourself, try to go back with more intention and maybe maybe more concrete language and say help and maybe let people help you how they want to help you, not maybe how you've told them to help you, but yeah. just help is help. I just sort of like the, the concept of that. And what I would say about, about grief and loss which is maybe parallel or similar is there's a lot of isolation that people feel, right? There's these words alone and lonely and isolation that I feel like come up in people's lives when they're mm -hmm. grieving. Mm -hmm. And you can very quickly do that thing that you said with your coworker, which is decide that how you feel or what's going on in your life is too much for other people. Mm -hmm. Being able to identify someone that you feel comfortable really authentically sharing what's going on with you, even if it's just one person and then trying to open that circle so that there are more than just one person over time is important. And I get a little bit of pushback from people on that. They're like, no, Megan, you know, it's too vulnerable. I don't want to tell people, people are going to think I'm too much. They're going to reject me. They are going to, and there is a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy component to that. If you're, if you aren't practicing it, you might vomit it all over somebody at a family right. reunion. And then, you know right. what, that was too much and they don't want to talk to you. And that, you know, right. so there's, there's a nuance to it. There's the truth of, we all lose our loved one or our business or our, whatever it is, our marriage. We that's individual. No one did that with me. No, mm -hmm. even if I have a sibling who also lost my mother, they lost their mother, their way. I lost my mother, my way. Yep. And there's this human universality and it's not even just human. I mean, we have all this data, elephants grieve in these really profound ways. Yeah. That grief is the reaction to the loss. Mm -hmm. What we can do is we can pathologize ourselves by saying nobody can handle this loss with me. If, if somebody was just depressed and they were like, listen, I've been invited to five parties. I'm not going to go to any one of them. Well-meaning people would say, ah, why don't you come for 15 minutes? It's probably good for you to get out. We might not like it, but even as a therapist, I would say, yeah, try, try a little bit because human interaction usually has some positive elements to it. Sure. The interesting thing about grief is when someone says, oh, I don't really feel like it. People on the receiving ends are like, okay, well, I tried. I'm gonna leave her alone. I'll call her in a couple of weeks. One thing that I really noticed in your story is that you sought people out. Mm -hmm. You made calls. You talk to people at events, yeah. you extend it outward. So when people say to me, give me one thing, Megan, one thing, and I'm not a big advice person. What I say is go, go near, go close mm -hmm. for yourself and for the sake of other people. It might be awkward. It might be uncomfortable, but I really believe near, close, attached, 
is incredibly important. You will always know to step back if you need to and close the door. But there are a lot of people who might need to go near and go close who fall out of the habit of even doing that because they couldn't push towards wave a hand and say, hey, Mm -hmm. I want connection. So I love that that's actually at the root of your story. Yeah, yeah, it is. Connection is. And, you know, look, um, I'm going to steal it from a friend, but who says, he says, we're all just little kids in big kid bodies using big kid words. That's right. And we just, we just want to be safe. And I've always thought that I was raised in a, in a household where I didn't feel safe. Certainly not safe to be me. What I wanted for my kids was above everything else, safe, safe to make mistakes, do well, be an idiot, be smart, whatever. I just wanted them to be safe. And I think that's what we all want. I'm not saying like, uh, screw them. I'm just going to be me, but I mean, yeah. like, if you can be safe to be yourself and you can be safe to be in a safe space with somebody to lean in and listen and give them a safe space to lean in and listen. I think that's where the truest beauty in life is, is mm-hmm. connecting with people in a safe, meaningful, leaning in heart centered, authentic way, because really that goes to feed our emotions that goes to connect us better. And that goes to kind of enjoying the life experience, right? Who doesn't feel better when you have a true, authentic, meaningful, valuable interaction with somebody, even if it's for a fraction of a second, a smile that you both know what the heck is going on behind that smile to each other, even to a stranger, right? Where you go, that was real. Like, oh my God, that person was so real. Or when you ask somebody, oh, how are you doing? And they look at you and they go, you know what? Thanks for asking. But they didn't say thanks for asking because that's what they were supposed to say. Right. They said it because, oh my God, you know, thanks for, I'm really glad that you cared about me enough to ask me. Thank you for asking. And like these authentic interactions, I think are where really where the true beauty of life lies. Yeah. And, and I, I was just thinking when you were saying that, I think a lot of what people are struggling with is so much of that incidental positivity that we would get just by being people in the same line at Starbucks. Mm-hmm. We haven't had in this past 18 months because we haven't, right. it hasn't been safe to be out there in the world. And so someone is smiling and holding the door for you is not as common as it once was. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. eager for those of us who get that kind of regulation to be out in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I'm so excited for you about this book. I could talk to you about this forever because I feel like it has so many entry points as people um, get in contact with it and read it and, and know your story. Mm-hmm. I just think it's going gonna, it's gonna to offer that thing that we wanted to offer, which is for people to feel hopeful about the, the humanness of, of grieving loss Mm-hmm. And allow people to maybe even up their skill passively just by reading it and hearing the different vignettes and stories and your own story. Mm-hmm. I did want to also thank you and thank your team for reaching out because when I asked people in my world what they wanted on a podcast and what they wanted to, um, to hear and who they wanted to hear from, we have a lot of women in this field, a lot mm-hmm. of the female voice around what grieving looks like. And I would tell you in my clinical work, the people that I have seen who have really struggled the most with what it means to identify as a griever have been men. And that was what people said to me, please, Megan, make sure that there are 
male voices out there that are telling us about how they did this. And so while some of your story is very extreme and many people will not emulate getting on their bike or riding or becoming an elite athlete, I also think the tenants underneath it, which are really giving yourself the mind space to mm-hmm. attend to this over time, right? Because it's not like you did it, you know, six weeks after it's been a, it's been a whole way that your life has shifted so that you can carry the loss of your sister. And it has, you know, it has formulated your calling in your, in your work world, which is just really extraordinary. And I'm very grateful for this conversation. I hope we stay connected. I'm going to, I'm going to put your, um, all your contact stuff in the show notes so that people will, um, will get in touch with you, but it, but if there's anything you particularly want people to know that's coming up for you or any of those things, feel free to just tell us about that now. The one thing I always fail to mention, and I, I always wait till the end to mention, I guess I should mention in the beginning, is that the um, net proceeds from the book so are going to support the cancer-focused charities yeah. that were picked by the book participants. I have a publisher who's very generous with that thought, um, and so... Yeah, even though the amount of money we're going to raise selling books is not a lot, I think the message is way more important than the money. At least we know that uh, that you know uh, some really great organizations that care for people that are going through or have gone through the trauma of cancer and other traumas are going to get a little bit of support through the book sales. I, I mean, I, honestly, I I think the the biggest surprise for me is that I went into this thinking that these stories are going to be really heavy and moving and whatever, but you know what? They're really hopeful, inspirational, uplifting stories. Not all of them have happy endings, but they all have a positive, hopeful, inspirational, you can take something from it message. And so what I have coming up is just continuing to increase readership and focus on equipping people to better deal with the grief and the trauma and, you know, start hard conversations with each other. Uh, it's just beautiful work. I'm, I'm so grateful that your team reached out. I appreciate Thank you so much that. for this time. I am yeah. really, really grateful. I, it was lovely talking to you. You're such a delight. Oh, um, I hope our paths cross in the future, David. They will. We'll stay, we'll stay connected for sure. I love that. Take All care. Right. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody, don't forget to check the show notes if you want to learn more about David's work and his book and how to get it. And please come over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating. It really helps other people to find the podcast if we have descriptions and ratings and stars and all those things. If you have any comments about the episodes, things you want me to know, or guests that you might suggest that I have on. I love all that stuff. You can get to me on my website, um, which is www.griefismysidehustle.com. You can send me a message on Instagram, Facebook. All right, we'll see you later in the week for another episode. Take care.